Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm Mary Renoff, your host today, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news. Today, we're joined by Dr. Ben Miller, a psychologist and the Chief Strategy Officer of Wellbeing Trust. We'll be talking about mental health policy. Remember, everyone, if you have questions for our expert, please feel free to submit them via our Twitter or Facebook while we're live here today. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag Future of Health and we'll be on the lookout throughout the show. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this podcast is for educational purposes only, and you should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding your medical condition or treatment. Okay, let's get started by welcoming Dr. Miller to the show today. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, Dr. Miller? Sure, Mary. Thanks for having me on. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, a musician at heart, and someone who got into policy honestly because I thought it was one of the most exciting things that was happening in my field. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer for Wellbeing Trust, a national foundation focused on advancing the mental, social, and spiritual health of the nation. Wonderful. So, Dr. Miller, I have heard you referred to as a fragmentation fighter. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means? Yeah, it, it, it sounds so punk rock and radical, doesn't it? It's, exactly. it's a way to get people excited about the issues of policy that typically don't pay any attention to policy. And why you want to be a fragmentation fighter is that most people that are out there that have experienced health care or tried to get care for their family members or their friends, they know how fragmented it is. We treat the mind, we treat the body, we treat where you live, we treat all of those things as totally separate. And so when I describe myself as a fragmentation fighter, it's because I want to bust up the system and make it more integrated. It's what is best for our communities. It's what's best for our health. Yeah, I love the passion. That sounds amazing. And you're right, it does sound very like futuristic and aggressive. I feel like there's a tribe that we should be getting a part of or something. <laughs> That's right. Well, we joke that, you know, we don't go as far as lighting couches on fire and throwing them out of windows, <laughs> but we do try and draw attention to the things that need radical change. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I know I personally have had the pleasure of working with Wellbeing Trust, but I, for those of people joining us who don't know, can you tell us a little bit more about what the Trust does? Absolutely. So we were started by the Providence St. Joseph Health System in recognition, frankly, that there's a problem in this nation around mental health and addictions. And, and rather than just kind of piecemeal solutions to the problem, um, Providence, in its wisdom, created a foundation that's focused on addressing this issue nationally. So we are a national health foundation. We're one of the only health foundations in the country that focuses exclusively on mental health and addictions, which is pretty cool. It's a, it's a wonderful responsibility, but it's also a challenge because, as many of your listeners know, um, mental health and addictions, it has been somewhat of a taboo subject over the years. We don't like to talk about it as much. Sometimes we like to pretend it's not even a thing. In the clinical community, um, honestly, I've had providers say to me, well, we don't ask about mental health because we don't really think it's a problem for our patients. So well-being trust lands in, at the heart of that issue, where we're working to change the narrative in this country that mental health is essential for good health. Well, there's definitely a mental health and addiction crisis in America. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, unfortunately, we have some data that show how in this country we're going in the wrong direction. We've lost more lives to drug, alcohol, and suicide the last year than we have on any year in previous history on record. So we've, we were watching numbers go in the wrong direction, and we're, we're kind of looking at ourselves like, well, what are we doing? We've got all these amazing innovations. We've got scientific evidence that now is irrefutably in support that the mind and the body are separate, but yet it doesn't seem like it's working. So why is that? Well, it's at the top of your, your show and your question. It's that we still have a, a system that's fragmented. 
We still have a community that expects fragmented care, and we pay for it differently. We policy it differently. We practically everything you can do in healthcare for mental health, we do differently than we do for medical. And I think that's part of the reason that we're going in the wrong direction. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting point, Ben. Why do you think it is so different around mental health? Well, honestly, I mean, we could go all the way back to like, you know, 500 years ago and talk about philosophers and their understanding of the psyche. But really, I think if you look at the United States healthcare, there's a couple of pivotal points where things really took a different direction. The first is that if you look at the turn of the century around the 1900s, we didn't know what to do with individuals that had mental health needs. So what we would do is we put them in the hospitals, we would institutionalize them, that's the, the, the formal word that we would use, or we would just keep them at home and not let them out of the house and say, you know, that's just, you know, my uncle and he just doesn't come out. We didn't really know what to do. And so we created a system that was in response to our lack of knowledge. 1963 was the first time we saw a major piece of federal legislation, a policy that came forward under the Kennedy administration that said, you know what, it's not right to keep people hospitalized for their lives just because they have a, a mental illness. Mm-hmm. How can we bring people back into the community? How can we reintegrate them back into their homes so that they're not being held in a place that doesn't necessarily work in favor of their health? And so that, that's where we began to see some changes in our society. Unfortunately, while well-intended, they were the wrong changes. Mm-hmm. We created different health insurance to take care of mental health and addictions than we did for medical in the 60s because we didn't have a mental health benefit before 1963. There wasn't such a thing. So we had to actually create it. Well, when we created that, entire structures, entire archetypes, and entire payment models were built around mental health that weren't there before. So here in 2019, we're still dealing with those silos and those fragmented structures that were created 50-plus years ago. Oh, that's really, really interesting. I feel like we could spend like a whole segment just on that. <laughs> We should. I know, we should. You know what? We'll have you come back. What are you doing next week? <laughs> yeah, I'm all yours, Mary. <laughs> so I know that you, uh, you and the Trust spend a lot of time on mental health policy. Why policy? We define policy as movement in a direction for a reason. And if your listeners have paid attention to the first few minutes that we've been talking here, you know we're going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Some of that is because of policy. So if we begin to create policies that move us in a different direction, that's what we want to reinforce. So as a foundation, it's not our job to necessarily get out there and to write the laws and to stand on the hill and beat our chest and say, it must be this way. It's our job to bring forward innovative solutions, to finance some of those solutions when appropriate, but really to listen to the community and their voice, and then to take the direction that they want to go and help move it into the places where it can be enacted into policy. So what that might look like. It might be a story that happens in your community. I live in Denver, Colorado, and Unfortunately, we've had some tragedies recently that have brought to light the lack of access that people have for mental health services. So when you hear those stories as a community member, you might say, well, what do I do? How can I get involved? And there's half a dozen ways to do that. We could talk about a little bit later. But really what Wellbeing Trust wants to do is to lift up those stories, to say that there is a better way. And half of the the fight that we're going to have to have in changing healthcare is going to be through policy. So why wouldn't we as a foundation committed to advancing the mental, social, and spiritual health of the nation not get involved in that space. Hmm. How does Wellbeing Trust then actually use policy to advance those? Great question. So we see ourselves as having four key functions for policy. The first is that we believe that we must be leaders. So you have people like me, many of our, our team, 
that are content experts in mental health and in addictions and in policy and in community. How can we lead the nation and work with communities in leading the nation towards a different vision of health? The second one is around leveraging our investments. So as a foundation, we invest in products, we invest in people, we invest in programs, we invest in a lot of things. How can we leverage those in service to a different vision of health? The third is around linking. We've got a, a tremendous network, a lot of friends that are out there doing just some of the best work in the country. How do we link them together so that we don't have this phenomenon that I describe as disconnected brilliance, where we actually have individuals that are brought together in service to uniting or advancing a common cause? And then the fourth and, and the last and probably most important for how we address policy is that we localize. We understand that there's definitely a federal agenda. There's something at the national level that must be brought forward that's a different vision of mental health. But we also know that change happens at the community level, that it's all localized. So rather than just have kind of a, a one-size-fits-all policy for what's going to you know, solve all the problems for mental health, how do we look at individual communities and lift up their voice, as I mentioned, but also allow us and Wellbeing Trust to take these amazing ideas with community and to really localize them back into community. Oh, this is great information. I think we're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we'll be joined again by Dr. Miller, and we'll talk a little bit more about mental health policy. We'll be right back. Back with the Future of Health, I'm Mary Renoff, your guest host today, and we are still joined by Dr. Miller, Chief Strategy Officer of the Wellbeing Trust. So Ben, right before the break, you talked a little bit about leveraging investments as one of the four pillars that you focus on. Can you talk a little bit about any of the investments you think have been the most impactful? Absolutely. I'd love to talk about that. But before I do, let me describe why we think the investments in community are so important. Um, 1967, which I know is a long time ago for many of your listeners, or maybe not, maybe it was the year they were born or the year that somebody else they know was born, maybe it wasn't that long ago. Um, we know that in 1967, this amazing report came out called the Folsom Report. And the Folsom Report lifted up an idea called Communities of Solution. And the premise is really basic. It's that communities have better ideas to solve complex problems than oftentimes policymakers do because they're not in the community. They may be disconnected from some aspects of the community. So we adopt as a foundation this communities of solution approach. We believe that communities have ideas that could be lifted up in service to advancing a, a common goal or problem or solving a problem. So some of the investments that we've gotten into, which has been quite substantial, I have to say, we've done a lot, really are built off that premise. 
So I'll tell you one example. One problem that we know is a a major for many individuals in this country is what happens when they're having an acute mental health or psychiatric crisis. Where do you go? What happens when you go to wherever you go? We found that in emergency emergency departments, which is one of the places that people typically show up because they don't know where else to go, don't do a great job of managing mental health. Mm -hmm. And there are stories that I could tell you that would make your listeners just kind of put their heads down in shame because we've not necessarily realized that people that are in acute crisis need a little bit different type of attention and approach. So one of the investments that we've made is right back into the emergency departments. We've brought together multiple health systems, partnered with the National Organization, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and said we have to address not only the the reasons and how we treat people with mental health crises in emergency departments, but we've got to figure out where they came from. And what are the ways that we can go upstream, go back into community, and solve some of those problems in community around mental health crises before they get downstream and they show up in the emergency department? So, Ben, for people who maybe don't know, what do you mean by upstream and downstream? Yeah, so this is based on a story that's been told now for generations, and it's a metaphor that we use. And, and the story goes something like this. Um, there's a, a man and a woman standing at the a riverbank, and they see people floating down river, and they look at the people and they say, we have to save them. The people in the river are calling out, hey, you know, help, you know, get me out of here. And so what they do is they try and save as many of the people they can, and they pull them out. And then before too long, more people join them at the bank of the river, and they say, "Where, you know, what's happening here? You've got to help us. Let's get these people out of the river. And so more join, and they keep pulling people out. You know, but occasionally people slip by, and they keep going on, and they don't know um, where they're going or what's going to happen to them. Well, you know, after a while of this, a person comes by and says, you know, I really appreciate what you all are trying to do, but don't you think we should go upstream and figure out how these people are getting thrown in the water in mm-hmm. the first place? And so would we talk about prevention? We're usually describing it in, in terms of this metaphor. Where are, what are the precipitating factors or what are the, 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 uh, the factors that go into someone actually ending up in the river? Well, in mental health, it might be a housing crisis. Mm-hmm. We know di- that there are direct implications of employment status on drug overdose deaths, for example. For every 1% increase in unemployment in this nation, there's a 3.6% increase in drug overdose deaths. That's an upstream factor, Mm -hmm. employment. Most people don't pay attention to that. They just look at, oh, wow, we've had drug overdose deaths in our community. What's the program that we can use or create to solve that? Well-being Trust is approaching this from a much more comprehensive perspective where we're not only looking at the downstream, how do we get people out of the water, but we're also looking at the upstream. How do we prevent them from being thrown in in the first place? That's a great way of explaining it. I really like that. I think you're talking a little bit about what impacts mental health. So you're talking a little bit about housing. What are other determinants of mental health that people maybe don't think about? Yeah, there's a lot of them. And so when we begin to think about, and I would encourage your listeners just to kind of think about what, let's make this simple here. What makes you happy? What makes you sad? What makes you stressed? Whether or not you realize it, those factors, whatever you just thought of, those impact on your mental health. So, for example, if you're in a home or a neighborhood that you don't feel safe, the ongoing exposure to that stress has a negative impact on your overall health over time. Could it it develop into a depression or anxiety or some type of mental health? Maybe. Or maybe you're just walking around constantly in a state of turmoil just because you don't feel that you can relax. So security and housing is something that's a basic tenet. We've known this a long time. 
in the field of psychology, we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's impossible to actually realize who you want to be in life if you don't have kind of the basic tenets of, of security and housing and things of that nature. So all these factors are not lost on people in day-to-day. The problem is that we've created such a complicated way of talking about our health Mm -hmm. that we've lost sight of how personal it is. Health is the foundation for achievement. It's unique to you, Mary. It's unique to me. How we define it is individualized. It's up to us. It's not about health care. It's really about kind of you, how you feel, and what you feel like you need to be successful in your life. It's very true. It's very true. You know, a minute ago you were talking on the investments about the emergency departments, and you mentioned pulling multiple health systems together. That sounds really challenging. How do you do that? Yeah, it is challenging. Uh, And, you know, healthcare, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this, but, I mean, healthcare is a complicated thing. Um, The delivery side is, is, I mean, we have to view it for what it is. It's a business. Mm -hmm. And while many of our businesses are in it for the right reasons to help people, um, at the end of the day, you have to figure out a way to make revenue so that you can pay your staff, so you can support your buildings. And so bringing people together that sometimes have different um, business models, or in some cases they are in competition for similar things, that's a very challenging um, idea. And it, it's difficult for many people to really grasp, especially when you're looking at the business side of it. So bringing multiple health systems together requires nuance. It requires the health systems to come to the table knowing that why they're coming to the table is bigger than just the business. It's actually about the person. And that's a really um, wonderful sentiment. And I think that some of the uh, stories that we've heard, and we just uh, heard a little bit about this yesterday from some updates around this project, um, we're seeing that health systems have recognized that they have not done a great job addressing those mental health needs, especially in the emergency departments. And so for them to share their stories with one another, to address it in the frame of quality improvement, and to really begin to look at how they can change their own processes and structures to take better care of people in crisis, to me, that's why Wellbeing Trust is in existence, to make changes like that, not just in the clinical space, but so that when those people go back home or they go to another conference or they're sharing a story at dinner, that they're able to tell a different narrative around mental health. It seems like mental health is a no-brainer for people to want to get involved in, whether it be health systems or people, but it also seems kind of overwhelming. I mean, there's so many different things you could do. There's so many investments you could make, so many programs. And even when it comes to policy, which is what you specialize in, how do you and how does the Wellbeing Trust make the decisions as to where to spend the time and the effort? Yeah, we look at two things. Um, One, we look at data because I think the data are foundational. They, they help us understand kind of the trends. They help us pick out, you know, some of the, the, the patterns that emerge from, you know, watching things over time. They allow us to make, I think, some scientific um, observations on ways that we can have the most impact. That's number one. And we could talk about data, you know, all day, and that would probably bore your listeners to tears. We won't do that. I'd get um, geeked but out we by also... it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Mary. Uh, I want to keep you awake here, too. Um, but we also want to talk about community and the stories. And, and I, I know that this is so important, but when you begin to look at um, policymakers and what really drives their decision-making, oftentimes it's not just the data. Data are helpful. They sometimes make a case. They put an exclamation mark on the end of a sentence. But it's the stories that come from community that we see leading to more substantive change than anything else. So well-being trust, when we talk about policy, 
how naive of us would it be for just to expect that we can look at a data point and say, well, this is how we're going to address the issue. We have to be able to listen to the voice of community, to listen to some of their problems, their challenges, but also their solutions. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, the issue of access is one that I think most people can relate to. If you're looking for mental health services, finding it is sometimes is difficult. There was one survey that came out of California that found that two-thirds of individuals that had actually a mental health need didn't receive any care within a given year. Oh, wow. Two-thirds of people. That's a lot of folks. That's a lot. There was another survey that came out that found that last year, 96 million people in this country had to wait more than a week to get access to mental health. Goodness gracious. So I want you to think about that in perspective here. If you're experiencing some type of mental health crisis or you just need to talk to somebody because you just don't feel great and you're being told you have to wait a week or in some cases, and I won't point out the states, months, mm. how do you think that makes you feel and how do you think that contributes to your overall health and well-being? That's an access issue. So for me as a policy guy, I think, well, what causes people to have to wait? What are some of the reasons that they can't immediately go and find a clinician who's going to be able to take care of them? Well, that's one of the main issues and one of the main policy agenda items that Wellbeing Trust is actively working on. Wow. That's kind of heartbreaking when you think about it. I can't imagine that you already feel hopeless and now you can't even get in to talk to anybody. You finally made the jump, right? You're ready to talk to somebody you can't even get in. That's just so sad. And it, it just goes against our culture, too. I mean, when was the last time you had to wait for anything? Right. And so, Instant gratification. <laughs> that's right. And so when we can pick up a phone and order a, you know, a talking panda for our kids or order the latest, greatest you know, pair of Jordans that came out and, and they arrive the next day, why should we have to have any different expectation for our health care? Which arguably, Mary, I don't know, we can maybe quibble over the Jordans here, I mean, is <laughs> more personal than any other facet of things yeah. that we could potentially buy or have. It's the most personal thing. So why do we have to wait the longest for it? Very true. I don't know that you should have brought up shoes. You know, I could go off on a very long diatribe here. <laughs> I think, Ben, um, before we take another break, you've mentioned community several times. I think I'd like to dig in a little bit to that because I think community means different things to different people. But when you look at it from a mental health perspective, especially around policy and action, what does community mean to you and the trust? Yeah, yeah that's a really important distinction here. I mean, community is self-defined. How you see community is really up to you. You can be in the mental health community and describe it as the place where you seek care. You can be in a faith community and describe it as your church. You can be on your block in your neighborhood and describe it as the people that live on either side of you. It's all up to us. I think the reason we use the word community is because it's bigger than just one institution. It's really about how people, those that we're actively trying to serve, begin to look at what matters most to them and how they define that community is what matters most to us. It, it would be wrong for us to enter into any given place, location, geography, and say, you know what, this is what's best for you, without allowing that individual to tell us how they define community and what they think is best for them. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back on more with mental health policy after this quick break. Thank you. Even when you're not around 
back with Future of Health. I'm Mary Renoff, your guest host today, and we are here with Dr. Miller, and we are talking about policy and mental health. So, Dr. Miller, tell me a little bit, how do people understand the effects of mental health policy, or do they even understand how it impacts them on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, most people don't understand the impacts of policy on them until there's a problem. And there's been so many surveys that have been done that look at satisfaction with healthcare, with mental health, and most people give it a thumbs up. They're like, yep, good to go, until they actually get sick. And then the satisfaction wanes. It goes away. It's not as good. And so I would say that most people are not going to feel the impacts of policy around mental health until they actually have to experience it themselves, which is unfortunate. And actually, this is a really good point. So I'm a policy wonk, right? I'm self-defined. I love this stuff. I, you know, It's what I talk about on Friday nights over pizza. I mean, it's really what gets me going. And I realize that most people don't like it as much or don't get as excited by it. But here's why it's exciting to me, is that when we as a community begin to see and become in, involved or engaged in issues, it's inevitable that it's going to fall back on policy. Mm -hmm. Not politics, mind you, mm -hmm. but policy. And so if there's a particular issue in your community that you're really passionate about, it could be something around, well, I don't want my neighbors to tear down their house and build one of those fancy sky rises. Or, you know, I actually want a speed bump on my street because I've got a school at the end and people drive too fast through here. Whether or not you realize it, there are policies that dictate and determine the outcome of that conversation. So I typically say that you may not get it yet, but policy is everyone's responsibility. Mm. And so don't get lost in kind of the, the, the mire and the muck of the politics and the talking heads and the pundits that appear on TV I realize it's somewhat ironic as a guy giving an interview on a podcast here, but I think that your listeners get the point. This is really all our responsibility. And if we do want to see something different in our communities, inevitably, you're going to have to address policy. So that's a, a very interesting point. If you're talking about the fact that we all need to get involved and we need to take responsibility, how do we do that? What are action items people or communities or companies even can take when it comes to mental health policy? I usually make this as simple as possible. So it begins with knowing what your issue is. I, you know, I made a, a tongue-in-cheek joke about your house next door and somebody building a, you know, a mega mansion next to you when you want it to be a, an old home. It could be the speed bump on the street. You have to know what your issues are. You have to be informed. And sometimes that requires you know, reading. It requires talking to people. But you need to, number one, know your issues. Number two, you need to know who to talk to. So say you realize what the problem is and you've got a really great idea for the solution. Who do you talk to next? Most people don't know who the representatives are, 
they don't even know how to go and find those, those representatives to go and talk to, whether it's your mayor, your county commissioner, your school board member, whoever. I would encourage people that are looking at this, um, USA.gov forward slash elected. Um, I think that's where you could find all your officials for the country. It's a really easy website just for people to access, and you can go and kind of look if you don't know. And don't be ashamed if you don't know. There's a lot of people that don't know. Even if you voted for them, you may not know. So number two is you got to know who to talk to. Mm-hmm. Number three, you got to have the conversation. And this is what's most terrifying for many people, is that they see our elected officials or the people that are responsible for policy as somewhat off-limits. Like, mm-hmm. okay, they're downtown, they're in the Capitol, or they're in that fancy building. You know, I don't even know what to say when I go there. What do you wear? What do you say? What do you do? Where do you park? Those issues, you, you can talk to other people about getting over, but you have to have that conversation. If you don't have the conversation, then you're just a person with an opinion, which is great, and I'm all about that. But you've got to go and have the conversation if you want to bring about change. And then the fourth most important point here, and I'll give you five, but the fourth is that you've got to know what you want. What is your ask? So in policy, we always end with an ask. It doesn't matter how simple it is. Your ask could be, well, can we do this again? Your ask could be, well, can you put the speed bump in the road? Your ask could be, well, can you put more money into mental health services? It doesn't matter. It needs to end with an ask because then you establish your legitimacy, but also your line in the sand for what you want to do. And the fifth is you follow up. Like any good relationship, you've got to be able to maintain communication to follow up. You may not get what you want. And I will tell you, um, as a guy that's been doing this for a little while, I don't get what I want most days. But it doesn't mean I stop. It means that we keep fighting. We keep pushing for change. If folks did this more often and were more civically engaged in things like this beyond just voting, I think that we would probably see a lot more robust change in our community. I think that's really good advice. I uh, <laughs> I was in D.C. last week and I physically ran into Mitt Romney. Like I was texting while I was walking and I ran into him. And I, I looked up and I said, oh, hey, oh, my God, Mitt Romney. And instead of actually like doing a selfie or anything, I was like, actually, I have a question for you about mental health policy. And he just looked at me and he's like, call my office. And I was like, yeah, but we're standing right here. And he's like, call my office. I'm like, eh, I'm standing right here. He kind of looked at me and said, you know what? It's fine. But when I call, I'm going to say I'm the girl who knocked you over. So I'm yes. hoping that I'll actually get a chance to talk to him. But I think you're right, because I think we kind of have this, it's almost like when you're in school and they tell you that the police officers and the president are these people that are untouchable and you shouldn't bother them. We vote for these people and then we don't actually reach out to them. We don't ask them to help us. And that's really what they're there for. So I think it's a really good reminder. Absolutely. I, and not to take it too far, Mary, but I would argue that if you're, the people that you're meeting with are not listening or are not representing or are not talking to you in the airport when you bump into them, Perhaps they're not the right people to represent. Exactly. And, I, mean, I mean, I'm not saying anything right now, but... <laughs> no, 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 no. Obviously, nothing against Senator Romney here. But I think the point is that, you know, the, the way that we've established government and the, what makes our democracy so beautiful in the United States is that we do get to speak into what happens. Mm-hmm. We do get a voice. And when we lose that voice, even if it's something as simple as, you know, trash cans on the street versus not... Or as complex as, like, help me transform the whole healthcare system to integrate mental health. If our voice is not being heard, we have to be heard in other ways. Mm-hmm. And that's where voting comes in. And, again, that's another segment for another time. It is. Again, I think you'll come back next week and the week after. 
Um, I, I do know uh, Wellbeing Trust, I actually had the, the pleasure of, of watching this whole process, but recently Wellbeing Trust helped a group of teenagers in Oregon get a youth bill passed. So create a bill, take it in, and get support and leadership behind it, and then, and then actually all the way through approval. I think that's such an amazing thing to do to kind of go even further upstream and talk to the kids who will be eventually either the, the policy makers or the voters. Do you have anything to add to that, that process? Yeah, I would encourage um, the listeners, and maybe there's a way we can share a link, to look at that story because it's a wonderful example of bringing together content experts, leaders, health system, administration, and the local community with the youth voice. It's truly um, just a stunning example of how important change is, especially when we drive it ourselves. I would say to folks that you know the, we, the issues that we are trying to solve did not happen overnight. Mm-hmm. These are generational issues. And so, you know, far be it for us to think that we're going to be able to solve it for our generation. Let's go back to our river here. This is the upstream piece. So the youth are the next generation. They're the people living with the decisions that we are making now. Mm -hmm. They will have to own those decisions, but then they're going to have their own ideas. Why not include them now so that we can create the future that they want and, and deserve and not just the one that we think is best for them? It, it, you know, it's analogous, Mary, to like, recording, you and I recording the next great you know, rap album, and not having anybody who's ever done anything with music help us. <laughs> it, it's like, why would we do that? I mean, maybe we could pull together some decent rhymes and some decent beats on the back of a, a coffee table, but it's not going to be as good as if we had the people that know it. Well, the youth know a lot, and they know mm-hmm. what's not working. Whether or not we give them a voice or listen to them, they know what's not working. But most importantly, we have to lift up their voice. Even if they aren't able to go to the voting booth and put, you know, check a box, what they think they need or and need for, to be successful, that's what we should be advocating for. That's agreed. Absolutely agree with you. It seems like there's a lot of challenges out there, and I know you talked a little bit about how you, you, you kind of go down the funnel and you pick which ones, but where do you think is the biggest need for mental health policy? I know you've talked about access, you've talked about a few things. If you had to pick the one that you think is the, the biggest area for you to focus on, what is it? Well, I still think access is the one because it's, it's the one that is most immediately recognizable in community. When you change the delivery system and the financing and all the other things that wrap around what goes into good access, people will immediately pay attention and they'll say, this is different. So that's why we have, you know, we've got three main things as a foundation that we focus on. Access is big, number one. It's foundational. But e- even if you, don't, um, if you don't have coverage, which is number two for us, you're not going to be able to get access no matter what. So, you know, fortunately or unfortunately in the United States, we have a system that really pays a lot of attention to your health insurance. Mm-hmm. So that's another issue that we as a foundation pay um, a great deal of attention to ourselves because we know that um, mental health parity, which has been the law of the land for the last you know, 10 years, has not necessarily been enacted in ways that are most appropriate for communities, which means that people, when they do show up, they don't have the right kind of coverage. And the third bucket, which I you know, this will bore your listeners to tears, so I'll just kind of say it and then I'll walk away from it, is that we have to have good standards of what we expect. Mm -hmm. We need to know what, you know, excellence for mental health looks like, and we need to be able to wrap around that good policy and regulation that supports high-quality care. If we don't have that, it doesn't matter if you can get access to care. It doesn't matter if you've got fancy health benefits that allow you to, you know, go wherever you want and see whoever you want. The quality, if it suffers and is poor, ah, that's just kind of, that's the heart of so many issues that we're facing. Very true. You actually, I mean, when you talk about access and coverage and standards of care, these are all things that really relate to healthcare systems and insurers. So what role do those healthcare systems and insurers have when it comes to mental health policy? 
a big role. It, and I would say, you know, this is where we have an opportunity to lead by example, that health systems, we, we can stand up and we can say, here is what it should look like for you community. And that's been a challenge, as I mentioned. I mean, we, this is not an issue that happened overnight. We're not going to solve the problem tomorrow. We're going to have to work really hard at this. So I would say that our health systems can be great leaders here. As some examples of what this might look like. When you show up for your annual visit in primary care, and there, wait a minute, there's a, a psychologist that's on site in the primary care practice that's there to talk to little old me. Wow, that's a really cool offering and benefit from being in this health system. I don't have to wait. I can talk to somebody about some of the issues that I'm dealing with now. And what's even better, it normalizes the entire aspects of mental health in ways that I think are pretty uncanny and wonderful. Uh, health systems also have the ability to kind of work within community and listen to community on redesigning certain facets of what they do. Great example here is that we know we need to integrate mental health. We know we need to bring it together with the rest of healthcare. But how do you disintegrate and put it back out into community? So not just saying, come to me, because it's usually the wrong answer, the wrong thing to say to a patient. How do you say, well, let me come to you? How do you put mental health and, and addiction services into schools? How do you go into places that you know that people initially show up, but, but we're not there because it's not a health delivery setting? To me, healthcare systems have the most robust concentration of providers anywhere in our communities. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that concentration is housed in a building that's not where people are. So how do we take the people, the clinicians, the providers back into the community? To me, it's a wonderful place for health systems to lead. That's interesting. I, I always think about that. I think we look at things in such a traditional perspective of going to the hospital for care, but I know Providence is great about having, you know, express clinics in Walgreens, and there's one in the Portland airport that I get to see often when I'm visiting. It's, it's such a great way to do it, but I still don't see mental health care in those ways. And I think when we look at things like technology and innovation and, you know, mobile apps and that sort of thing, that there's a lot of opportunity there. So I kind of want to explore that when we come back. I think we'll take a quick break. Um, and when we come back, we'll join back into this conversation. We'll take a few questions from social. Um, and we'll have Dr. Miller with us again. Thank you.
back with Future of Health. I'm Mary Renoff, your guest host, and we're joined today by Dr. Miller from Wellbeing Trust. And we're going to take a few questions from social. Um, we have one coming from Twitter that says, I heard that the death rate from drugs, alcohol, and suicide is higher than ever. Is that true and why? It's sadly true. Last year, we lost over 150,000 lives to drug, alcohol, and suicide. And it's the highest since we've been collecting data starting in 1999. And the reasons for this are multifaceted. It's not one thing. I wish I could answer um, the person's question with just, hey, it was this. It's not just one thing. Um, what we know, though, is that due to a variety of factors, including, one, our nation's inability to address pain, which is a much broader conversation for another day, and mm -hmm. it would be wonderful to have that topic of discussion just you know, unto itself. But we, you know, we as a nation haven't done a really good job of looking at pain, not just in terms of you know, the, the pain that you may have in your back, but the pain that you may feel emotionally. So that's number one. Number two, part of the reason is that we have not yet modernized the mental health system to take into account and really reach back into um, community in a way that takes into account the, the fundamental drivers of poor health. And so we've got a lack of data sometimes. Sometimes we have challenges with access, as we discussed. But really, we've just not been able to get people timely access to care. And so when they put it off, the problems get worse or when they put it off, and unfortunately what we're seeing from the data is that people turn to more lethal means to manage their um, whatever their pain might be or whatever their mental health struggles might be. So there's a variety of different issues. Um, but I want to say this, and this is a big caveat, it's really hard not to get discouraged when you look at these data. It's, it's frustrating. Each one of these numbers is alive. Mm -hmm. But I would say to your listeners that this is an opportunity for us to rise up. And as we talked about on today's show, this is really the importance of you and your voice being heard. Mm 
you know, it's not just going to be Ben Miller that's going to make change in this country, though I hope I do make some change. It's going to be us together. It's going to be you lifting up that story that you know in your community of the person that might have died to drug or alcohol and suicide. It might be the story where you saw that clinician that was working in the school and gave the youth hope and gave them the education of the knowledge or the words to use to describe what mental health was and how to talk to each other about it. But it's coming back to you. And I, and I don't want your listeners to lose that because I'm feeling pretty, um, pretty much at a place right now that this is the next major social issue for our country. Solving these problems around drug, alcohol, and suicide is a major issue, but the social issue, it's the fact that we've historically ignored mental health and addictions, mm -hmm. and now it's coming back to bite us. What can we collectively do together to solve that problem? That's so true. It's so true. I would, um, I would say, first of all, Ben Miller, you have made a difference. And one of the ways you've done that is Wellbeing Trust put out a report, The Pain in the Nation, um, which I'd love for you to talk about. But I also would remind listeners, because I think you brought up a good point about spending more time on this, we did have an episode recently about the opioid addiction crisis in America, and we were joined by um, Dr. Robin Henderson and Marshall Moncrief, both who work with Wellbeing Trust. It's a great episode. It's about 55 minutes of talking about what is addiction, why is addiction rate rising, and what can we possibly do about it. So I would encourage people to listen to that. But Ben, could you talk a little bit about that Pain in the Nation report and, and why, you, why you worked on it, what it really means, and maybe even the role data plays when it comes to the work you do? Yeah. Your listeners can go and take a look at the website. It's uh, www.paininthenation.org. You can see um, both not only the problems that we've been describing with the data, um, the number of lives that we've lost disproportionately to drug, alcohol, and suicide, but you can also see solutions. So we highlight 60 evidence-based practices and policies that communities can put into practice, but they really revolve around the things that I was just describing to you. How do we better address pain? How do we prioritize prevention? How do we really integrate mental health seamlessly throughout healthcare? Those are the solutions, the big three solutions that we highlight in this report. The reason this report mattered and why Wellbeing Trust funded it in partnership with Trust for America's Health and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is because we, we knew that foundationally people weren't aware of how big these issues are. That it's one thing to experience them maybe as an individual, but and you may feel isolated like that was just me. When you begin to see that it's all of us, when you begin to see that these numbers are rising and that it doesn't look like right now that we're reversing trends or moving in a different direction, um, we felt the need to bring that to light. But we didn't just want to kind of lament the problems and say, wow, look at these data, they're overwhelming. We, we, we wanted to say, here are the solutions. And so now in policy as a foundation, we're actively building off of our Pain in the Nation work to advance policy. Well, you just mentioned Robert Wood Johnson, uh, uh, Trust for America's Health, I know Wellbeing Trust, but one of the questions we had from social was, who are some of the bigger players when it comes to mental health policy? Well, I think that there's, there's, a, there's a short answer to that and a long answer to that. Um, many of your listeners probably know that there are advocacy organizations, both at a state and a national level, that represent different facets of mental health. Some may be providers and delivery systems and, and insurers. Some may be uh, individual people. Um, whatever they are, there are groups usually in your communities that, that are addressing mental health from a policy and advocacy perspective. Um, and so you can look at Mental Health America, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, mm -hmm. the National Council for Behavioral Health. There's a lot of them out there that are doing work in this space. However, and this is a big however, is that we need those individuals and those organizations to continue to do what they're doing. 
What Wellbeing Trust is trying to do is to single-handedly, not single-handedly because we're doing it with a lot of other people, but almost as a um, kind of the core of what we're doing in policy, we want to be able to bridge the mental health advocacy organizations with some of our other more traditional medical advocacy organizations. Get them all together and talk about mental health as a central issue. It should not just be the mental health advocacy organizations that are advocating for mental health. That is, is, is important, but it's somewhat of a defensive maneuver. It's very similar to what we described about pulling the people out of the river as you see them. Mm-hmm. What we need to be doing is to take all these different advocacy organizations and take them into community, have them listen to what people actually believe and want needs to happen, and then bring forward that message. Wellbeing Trust can play a convening role there. We, we as a foundation, I mean, we're not representing one particular group. We've got a lot of friends around the table, but our job is not to say it's only about your interest. Our job is about representing the interest of the broader, broader community. And when we do that, inevitably, all those players that we've described, whether we name them or not, they should come to the table because it's in service to that community. Absolutely. Well, here's another question that I think brings me back to a topic I want to discuss, too. Uh, we have a listener from Twitter who said, I know that you work with Patrick Kennedy. What do you guys work on together? Which I wanted you to touch a little bit more on parity. So I think that's a nice transition. Sure. Uh, I'm glad that somebody wants to talk about health insurance. That's uh, <laughs> usually not the first thing that people ask about, but that's great. I have three um, more be- questions from social that are just about insurance, so this should be fun. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I need to get to know your audience a little bit better. Um, this is great because health insurance is such a nuanced thing. Um, we know that, you know, as I told you already, the history of mental health, when we created mental health benefits, they were separate. And so um, Representative Kennedy, Patrick Kennedy, our good friend and colleague, um, he recognized alongside many other amazingly outspoken leaders that health insurers were not allowing mental health benefits to be treated or covered at the same level as medical benefits. That's, that would be not parity. Okay? So parity, mental health parity, was really about righting a wrong. It was about bringing mental health and addictions at the same level of coverage as you would for medical. And so in 1998, they passed a big law and it said, hey, folks that have employer-sponsored coverage, which, by the way, is like almost all of us, um, we need you to treat mental health at the same level as you do for all medical. What does this look like? It means that if you have a benefit on the medical or surgical side that says um, A, then that same benefit has got to be applied to mental health. It can't be that mental health is a B. It needs to be that mental health is an A because medical surge is an A. That means it's not just about your co-pays. It's not just about the services that are covered. It's about every facet of your insurance status. Now, what we found um, with Patrick Kennedy and his um, amazing shop at the Kennedy Forum and at the Kennedy Satcher Leadership Institute is that most states do not enforce that federal law through state statutes. Now, let me bore your listeners to tears here. (laughs) Statutes are typically a way that states can reinforce at a state level something that's been handed down at a federal level. And so it could be a law that's been passed that institutionalizes that law within the state. Statutes are a way to really enforce or reinforce something that's been decided somewhere. And we found that most states didn't enforce those statutes, which is not a surprise, right? It's kind of um, something that we knew and expected, but most of the United States, all our states are failing when it comes to adequately enforcing the law of the land through mental health parity. So and a long answer is that that's what we're working on with, um, with Patrick and his team. That's amazing work. It's amazing work. Um, One more question I think we'll take from Facebook says, my employer doesn't cover mental health visits and neither does my husband. Why don't they include it? And is that pretty normal? 
uh, the answer to your listener is that your employer should be required to cover your mental health benefits, assuming that they fit within certain plans. So here's what I would encourage the listener to do. Go to ParityTrack.org, which is a website that's done by the Kennedy Forum, and it really outlines what you should be expecting from your employer, depending on, you know, is it a large employer, a small employer, did you get your, your insurance through the individual marketplace, are you on Medicaid, and it will tell you a lot about what to expect. And here's the cool thing about Parity Track. If for some reason you're not getting what you should be getting, they have a mechanism that you can report this. Mm. So like any given law, when someone's not doing it and you report it, there are repercussions, ideally, especially in something as, as mental health. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage the listeners to go with Parity Track, go and take a look at what is actually built into the law. And then if there is an issue and their employer is not actually enforcing this, they can actually report it themselves. Oh, that's very helpful. You know, actually, I'm going to take the last question from Twitter here, which is, how can I improve access to mental health in my community? Well, I know this is going to sound extremely simple, but it begins with you. It begins with you knowing what to say, being willing to listen, and starting that conversation with your friends and with your colleagues. I realize that I'm a health systems guy. I talk policy all day and all all the time. But really, when it comes down to it, there are simple things that we as a community can do to own so many of the problems around mental health. And I believe first and foremost of that is to be able to comfortably turn to each other, to ask how you're doing, to know how to respond when the answer is not well, to know where to direct people when they do need more professional services, but not to shy away because they're afraid of what the person's going to say. Not to be worried about how they come across and the words that they use when they don't know what to say, but to be there for people, to be supportive of people, to understand that at the heart of all of us is this desire to feel belonging and to be in a relationship. And when we can support each other through having basic conversations around our health and well-being, including mental health, that's how we begin to get involved in increasing access. I know it's not a delivery thing. I know it's not a policy thing. But I would tell you, my friends, I think that if we're going to really solve a lot of these problems in our country, we can't be afraid of those questions. Very true. I have time for just a couple more questions, but I want to t- keep on this path a little bit. Do you think access can be helped or, or improved through mobile or virtual visits? I think in some ways it can be augmented. And I see that mobile, virtual, digital technologies are some of the most promising practices that we have moving forward. Uh, obviously, the scientific evidence is still catching up with the excitement of some of our, uh, our new entrepreneurs that are you know, churning out products seemingly every day around the mental health and well-being space, but it augments. And, and this is a very personal bias here, but I believe that even having the most seductive, cool tool that allows you to talk to somebody or connect to people, that's one way to feel connected. But at the end of the day, we still want to have some face-to-face. We still want to be able to touch a hand to a hand. And I'm not saying that these things are mutually exclusive. I am saying, though, that they should complement each other, and one should not replace the other. This should be a both and. Very true. Well, Ben, it's very clear to me that you're both passionate and vested in this work. What excites you most about the future of mental health policy? I think right now we're watching ideas come forward that are so innovative, that are being led, as, as we discussed already on today's show, by youth, the, the next generation's voice. Those things excite me. But perhaps what brings me the most excitement here is to see the changes absolutely on the horizon. It's right around the corner. Um, I don't believe this is a far-fetched idea to talk about integrating mental health throughout all community. 
I don't believe that it's going to be difficult for us. It is going to be difficult. I don't believe it's impossible mm-hmm. for us to begin to increase access throughout multiple entry points through healthcare. I believe that we are now having a different conversation in this country that will bring forward more thoughtful strategies on how to do that. To me, that's what gets me up every morning. That is what I, I, I do what I do for a reason, because I believe that we are at the cusp of seeing major transformation for healthcare in this country that includes mental health. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Ben Miller, for joining us today and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. You can also follow Wellbeing Trust on social media at Wellbeing Trust or visit wellbeingtrust.org. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you.